O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's Psalm 131, which along with Psalms 132 and 133 are the Psalms appointed for today, Thursday, April the 7th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our Lenten look at the prophecy of Jeremiah, the 26th chapter of the first 16 verses, uh, also in the Gospel according to John, the 10th chapter, verses 19 to 42, and then in Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> the, uh, the prophecy here it begins with, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. So Josiah was the great reformer who took down the altars of Baal and restored the worship of Yahweh uh, and, and only Yahweh in Israel at the time. And so Jehoiakim is his son, and, and he is a disaster. So thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house. So stand at the temple in the court there, and Jesus is going to appear there in the gospel. <clears throat> stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. Now, remember that people from all over the area, all over the kingdom, would come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And so that's what he is there to speak to people from everywhere in order that the word would go forth from there into all the territory that belonged to um, Israel. And so it, it's similar to why Jesus goes up to festivals. You go up to festivals and you do the things Jesus does in order that the word might spread. There's a reason that, that the, the crucifixion happened at Passover. That more people would see it, more people would know about it, more people would talk about it. And then the resurrection three days later, some of those same people would still have been there. They would have stayed through the Sabbath and would have heard some rumors about this the next day. And then what happens at Pentecost, which is another Jewish festival, right? So at Pentecost, people are gathered again for this festival 50 days after Passover. And what happens then? Well, that's from our perspective, is when the Holy Spirit falls. And so again, th- what we see when they gather there is, is we get a list of all the places these people are from who were there this day. And so now the word can go forth again. So th- there was a sort of uh, a reason behind everything happening at festivals. That's the way the word could go furthest, fastest, <clears throat> as people went back to their homes. So he's to go there and, and don't hold back a word. It may be they'll listen. And everyone will turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I've set before you, and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I'll make this house like Shiloh, and I'll make this house a, cur- a city, a curse for all the nations of the earth. And so Shiloh was the, the former place where worship happened. It was the place that was restored in the northern kingdom after the death of Solomon. And so it's gone. And it's gone forever. It was never to come back. It was never intended to be. And what God says is that that I'll do the same here. I'm not that attached to that building. I'm attached to the people. 
the building can be rebuilt, and my presence can be reestablished. It's important to be able to listen to that. But the other thing I want to keep reminding you as we go through this prophecy is what Jeremiah says, right? So he keeps accusing them, but the Lord does, of two things, not listening and not doing. Or you could do it the other way around, which would be the right way to do it, because that that was their central claim to uh, righteousness at all, was their response to the Lord's initial offering of the covenant was, we will do and we will listen. And so here you get that same thing. It may be that they will listen and turn from his evil way. And it, it's on and on you see this connection between listening and doing, and, and Jeremiah reinforces it. Like I said, it's a central part of their identity as the people of God is that commitment to begin doing while they learn. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking, all the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people. Then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. Can you see in that right there? Can you see that same basic group of people yelling, crucify him to Jesus. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? So Jesus, remember, one of the final things that he's prophes- that he is tried for is speaking against the temple. And he has said the same things about it. And, and so all the people gathered ag- around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, these would be the secular officials, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you've heard with your own ears. So they can't carry out the sentence of death. Only the, the secular officials can do that. So it's a trial that's happening here. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you've heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will relent of the disaster he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. In other words, you can do whatever you want with me. It really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things what you do with me or about me. you got to deal with the word of the Lord. And I've spoken the word of the Lord. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you'll bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak all these words in your ears. And if you look at the book of Acts, if you look at what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, you'll see that very same idea in play there in Peter's sermon as he convicts, or attempts to at least, convict the people of the sin of what they've done with Jesus, and it's to bring, it's bringing innocent blood on their hands. And it's also, remember, exactly the same thing Pilate says he won't do, and so he washes his hands of that blood. And so it's the, it's what do you do? And how you do you deal with it? But that's exactly what Peter wants to convict them of, and it's also what Pilate is is determined to avoid, which is bringing innocent blood on his hands. Well, you can't do that with water on your hands. Peter says you can do it with water in another way, though. You can repent and be baptized. 
And so Pilate wants to wash his hands of the blood, but his conscience can't deal with that. He needs more than water on his hands to deal with what he has done. But so Jeremiah says, look, all I did was speak the word of the Lord. You can do whatever you want to me. You still got to deal with the word. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and prophets, this man doesn't deserve the sentence of death, for he's spoken to us in the name of the Lord. So the, the official religious establishment <clears throat> was lined up against Jeremiah. Then they got the people on their side, right? And then they had to go to the civic authorities to get the penalty phase taken care of. They've already, they've already had the trial phase. Now the penalty phase is, is in. And in order to execute a death sentence, this is what you have to do. And it was the same thing that happened with Jesus. The they the, the the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish religious leadership, came in, did the kangaroo court, then got Jesus, got the people on their side, and the people were just easily fooled, and then they have to take him to the civil authorities, and civil authorities have to carry out the penalty phase, and so what happens here is exactly the same thing, except once they hear Jeremiah speaking, the people then distance themselves from the religious leaders and say, no, 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 he doesn't deserve to be crucified or to, to be sentenced to death. It's, it's an interesting thing. You see the same repetition playing itself out, and he, it, it's not making—let's not make him a martyr— but with Jesus, it's God's will. And so everything happens the way it does. So in the, in the gospel, remember, he has just said yesterday that I'm the good shepherd. Today, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. He's claiming to be God there. I mean, there's no question because there's only one good shepherd. So he's claiming to be God. Many of them said he has a demon as is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these aren't the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So what they're saying is, is that, that I, I don't... The, I'm trying to make sense of his words by, by trying to line it up with what's going on. I'm trying to see and understand what he's saying based on this other witness. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to say. At the time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah, so it's wintertime. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. This was in the area where Jeremiah would have been. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Who has he told? I mean, he's told everybody plainly in, in certain ways. But there are two people, the, the Samaritan woman at the well and the man born blind, that Jesus tells really plainly who he is. And they said, tell, you, tell us plainly if you're him. Jesus answered, I told you, and you don't believe. And, and that's an important thing, as we're going to see in this and then also in, in Paul's letter. Because this believing, and, and this goes back to uh, a philosophical principle that, that uh, was put forth in, in the late, 18th, or late 19th century or early part of the 20th century. Um, and it has to do with, with a belief, a commitment to believe something leads you to further truth in that vein of knowledge. But you've got to commit belief to start with. I'm going to believe this premise. And if I believe that premise, then it makes other truths, other pieces of knowledge available to me that would otherwise be unavailable to me because I didn't believe. And that's exactly the argument that Jesus is going to make right here. He says, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. In other words, you're, you're not destined to believe. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's becoming very clear what he's saying here. He's clearly not talking about Joseph when he says these things. Um, I and the Father are one. In case you were wondering, in in case you, you want to know something, I'm telling you something about Messiah you don't know. And that is, I and the Father are one. In other words, one plus one equals one. So now we're headed towards a Trinitarian understanding of things that Jesus is laying out. Now, it's offensive to Jews both then and now for one simple reason, and that is the great uh, accomplishment, let's say, of Abraham and thus of Judaism, and particularly Abraham, though, was that he was the, he's considered to be the father of monotheism, the belief that there is one God. And that belief and understanding is absolutely confirmed in um, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And this is Moses speaking. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so that is the, one of the most important claims in all of Judaism is to have um, really come across the reality that there is only one God, and he is one, he is unitary, and he is unique. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's clearly making a simple claim. If you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father for all intents and purposes. And so what's their response the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And remember the last time, it was because when he said, before Abraham was, I am, the name of Yahweh. And so here they pick up stones to stone him again, and he answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we were going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. What I would encourage you to do is to look something up, and that is, I would encourage you to look up, you are gods, Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R. Michael Heiser, he gives a fantastic explanation of what that means. It should be on YouTube, and it'll be less than 10 minutes long, so it's well worth the investment of time to do it. You are gods, Heiser. He said, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken... Do you say of him whom... So Jesus confirms all of Scripture right there in that statement. Can't be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God. Well, up there God said that you're God's. He says, if I'm not doing the works of the Father, then don't believe me. Believe the evidence of your eyes. And then, listen... And listen with believing ears. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. So he's saying, even if you don't believe what I'm saying, go back to this fir- the first dispute among them. The things the man's saying, that's not produced by a demon, and, and, and he's healed the blind. So the, he's saying here, believe the works. Even if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the works. It's the entree into further faith is what he's saying. Take the leap of faith in order that you might do this. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. So believing, he says, will give you knowledge and understanding. So it's faith seeking understanding, as Anselm said and the title of this podcast. So he says, if you believe, then you will know and understand. 
I'm going to do a series here in the next little bit. It'll probably be posted before even this is posted, to be honest with you, on truth and how we understand truth from a philosophical perspective. And, and I'll tease out this, this whole believing and understanding and knowing thing. He says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So they believed John, they believed the works, and then they began to know. In the epistle, Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people, his, the Jews? By no means. And his proof is, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. That didn't change. That basic stuff of his identity didn't change. He says, so God can't have rejected his people because I'm one of them. God has not rejected his people <coughs> whom he foreknew. Do you know that Scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. He, he made that argument before the Lord a couple of times, in fact. God's reply to him was this, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know everything that I'm up to. Your knowledge is limited, mine's not. So, too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So as long as you're pursuing righteousness and uh, eternal life through works, you're not part of the remnant. You only have to surrender and accept it as a gift of grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel did, the whole. The elect, he says, obtained it. But the rest were hardened, and as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that wouldn't see and ears that wouldn't hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In other words, Paul's making the case that everybody in the past knew that it was only going to be a remnant, that it wasn't all Israel that was going to be saved. <clears throat> so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. It's impossible that that would be true, is Paul's argument, because God is faithful to the covenants that he makes. He didn't annul the covenant. He didn't walk away from the covenant. He just expanded who's in the covenant in a way that we didn't expect, because we don't ask people to take on the yoke of the law. We ask them to take on the yoke of faith. And so Paul says, we misunderstood the covenant, but, but us misunderstanding the covenant that it's based in faith not works, is the problem. It causes us to misunderstand many things. But the belief of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone is a stumbling block. He recognizes it's a stumbling block for everybody because everybody wants to be able to do something. And I talked before about the day of Pentecost. What happens, they said, what do we do about this? How do we, what do we do to get forgiveness? We believe you that we have killed the Messiah, now what do we do? And, and Peter says, repent and be baptized. That, those are just steps of faith. Those are not works. They're steps of faith. If you believe this now, here are the things you have to do. Well, no, I, I'd like to do some penance. I'd like to do some other stuff. I'd like to make a sacrifice, but how do you sacrifice for killing Messiah? There's nothing in the, in the law that teaches us what to do here. And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Just believe. Believe. And then walk in faith. 
And it's as simple as that. He says, no, they, they didn't stumble in order that they might fall. That, that couldn't be the case. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, if they had accepted him, at some level, the Gentiles would still be outsiders in the, even in eternity. And it's still what they will teach today is, is, look, there's no reason for you to come in here and take on all the 613 laws. No, you're fine out there in the Noahide world. You only have to take on like seven things that you have to do, and they're all pretty simple. You don't have to work real hard for this. So, so no, 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 no. You just stay over there. Well, that's a statement of faith. <laughs> you're going to be saved by faith, by believing what we just told you. So it's always a request of faith, and then faith begets obedience, right? I mean, that's the way the process works. He says, no, if their trespasses means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? In other words, Paul's saying, look, hey, here's what I really want. I want them to all to repent and come in because, my goodness, as well as, as good as we have it right now, holy moly, it'll be a lot better when they come in because if, if them messing up, allows us to or allows y'all to come in then imagine what it'll be like because God loves them so much imagine what it'll be like when they come in it'll be truly extraordinary do we heed the words of Jesus do we heed the words of Paul do we heed the words of Jeremiah can we do it can we do it just on faith is it enough are you settled in your mind that faith in Christ is enough or are you still trying to earn your salvation in some shape, form, or fashion, I encourage you today to lay aside that attempt and effort. You are saved. You are in Christ Jesus. You have eternal life. You have the Holy Spirit. And what the Lord's saying to me right now, to say to you, because he's saying it to me first, is act like it. 